I'm Chris Riley, editor of Sweet Code and founder of Fixate. I just so happen to like food and software, so I'm going to connect with developers and engineers at their favorite places to eat and chat about what it's like to build modern applications. This is Developers Eating the World. All right, we're here at Kumal, somewhere in downtown Denver, I guess north North Denver. In, in Rhino. And so is this officially right now? Yeah, yeah. we're right first. at the edge. <laughs> I was right. Um, I'm sitting down with Daniel, and uh, why don't you just give a first quick introduction on your role, who you are, and I'll explain why I decided to talk to you. Sure, <laughs> sure. Uh, my name is Daniel Ritchie. I'm a distinguished engineer at Broadridge Financial Solutions, and uh, we're primarily responsible for uh, getting the organization uh, transitioned into DevOps. And that okay. means, of course, so a lot of living. different things. So. And wait, it, what's the company do again? Uh, we basically handle a lot of the behind the scenes things in the financial services industry. Mm -hmm. So technical solutions for financial services. Um, and we have hundreds of products. I mean, all, so that all kinds has of things. a huge element of complexity. Big time. But not like WorldPay or, or a company of that sort. Oh, well, we've got, I don't know, better than 10,000, maybe 12,000 employees globally right now. And we deal with a lot of large, large organizations around the, around the world. So something like seven out of the 10 top banks and institutions by trading volume are our customers. Uh, we run shareholder meetings and send out accounting and reporting statements and actual, we'll hand, handle actual physical mail. And, yeah. Shaving the yak stuff. Oh yeah. Um, so tell me first about this restaurant. So you picked this place after we found out the first joint was closed on Tuesdays. Yeah. You know, Kamal is one of my favorite spots in Denver, actually. Uh, so the Zeppelins, who have done a lot of the development here at Taxi, Zeppelin Station, Source Hotel, etc. Uh, they basically said, we don't want to open up just another restaurant. We want to do something kind of cool. So they call this a heritage food incubator. And the idea is you've got heritage foods uh, I guess it's Mexican today. Uh, the last time I was here it was Syrian, okay. and they bring in people who you know have come here either as refugees or uh, they just have migrated here, and basically give them a kitchen that they can showcase their recipes as well as learn how to run a restaurant. So they they get actual real life skills, so cool. and it works well for us because we get to eat delicious right things. and I'm wondering if they make like if most of the revenue from the restaurant is what pays for the because do they they don't have to pay tuition or anything? I don't think so. I'd be I, you know I don't know all the details. Um, I, I, I suspect it's kind of because they call it an incubator, right? Right. So I don't know. There might be some, you know. I think about how uh, you get like a convertible note from you know one of these accelerators or something like huh. that. I, I I don't know that they do that type of thing, but I suspect there's some small. Oh, uh, it's amount. really cool. Yeah. yeah, and it's a very in a very industrial part of Denver. Um, and you were saying that this used to be the old taxi lot, which I get, I get totally <laughs> picture. Yeah, imagine a, imagine a field full of taxi now, cabs. Yeah, yeah, so it used to be taxi cabs. Most people probably arrived by an Uber or one of the city bikes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it's completely transitioned. Um, well, anyway, so one of the, the reasons I decided to talk to you is because last time we met was at a... What is it called? DevOps Mafia. You just talked mm -hmm. to it locally. Sundowners, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we were talking, and you said something that got my interest in a big way, which was you splunk your Jenkins. <laughs> 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 and uh, so we'll have to dig into what that means. But 
the part of it that is um, fascinating about building any sort of monitoring around your release automation process is that most of the time we think of DevOps delivery change as the thing that, you know, input code, output software, but we, then we don't think about like the management layer of all of the, you know, the pipeline you build. Is that what you mean when you say you spunked your Jenkins? You know, I, I can't take direct credit for that, actually. <laughs> we, we splunk our Jenkins at our organization. I don't do the splunking myself. <laughs> uh, but what we focus on is really creating a pipeline that is accessible to everyone that has to be a part of that. Right. So whether that's monitoring or infrastructure, configuring your systems, uh, actually doing the deployments of your application, and obviously the stack varies quite a lot. We, we basically try to create a backbone that anyone can plug into. So it's not necessarily that you have to be some canonical central authority in order to get your job done. You just have to kind of learn the rules of the road and then you can do whatever it is that you need to do. So we have a team that's dedicated to monitoring and they can just plug into our pipeline. So in your organization, are you kind of like a services layer? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I've we've- seen that work a lot. We formed a center of excellence in 2016, um, which is kind of like an anti-pattern, right? We're going to have a center of excellence for DevOps. It's like, let's create a new silo. But um, despite that being formalized, we had, um, I, th I really liked the, the way our company approached this, actually. Uh, we were very intentional about having it be something that we could have a formal kind of group within the organization but we weren't going to shoulder all the responsibility or take it away from right. anybody. We were kind of going to let the experts focus on their job while we could kind of pave the way for integrating, you know, different service layers that they have. Uh, we have a variety of shared services groups that are involved. We actually just got an award uh, last week or two weeks ago now uh, for DevOps Automation Excellence for a DBA team, actually. Um, one of these heritage DBA teams that are responsible for deploying, you know, 6,000 databases a year or something like that. Uh, wow. six different technologies, on-prem, cloud, et cetera. And they basically were able to take that framework that we have, plug in their own automation, and make it accessible to developers. So instead of having to, you know, the kind of typical service request, have a ticket, uh, they just can push a button and developers can have their database. So. That's awesome. I'll let you eat some first before I start ragging you on other stuff, because I don't want it to get cold. It's really good, though. Green chili pork. Everything Colorado in green chili, like I will just order it if it says green chili. You just can't go wrong. I have a buddy who grew up in Fair Play and they make, I mean, they know how to make pork green chili, you know, it's part of their, part of their diet. So coming from Pennsylvania, I didn't know what green chili was, you know. So, <laughs> how long have you been in Colorado? I've, I've been visiting since I was very young, but I've lived here for maybe 19 years now. Oh, okay. And how long have you been with your company? Wow, uh, about eight and a half years. Okay. Yeah. How do you get the title distinguished? <laughs> you know, they called me up one day, and uh, well, we had we had a conference call. And then my boss and his boss are on the phone and say, "Hey, can you stick around?" And I'm thinking, "Oh, am I in trouble? Like, what, what's this?" And and they tell me that they've nominated me for this. Um, we had uh, I don't know three thousand some technical associates, and they said we want to have a handful of distinguished engineers that um, basically are part of a, a technical growth track that they're creating within the organization. Okay. So there were 16 of us that are part of the first round oh, of wow. this. Oh, um, wow. But the idea is 
you know, if you're an individual contributor and you, you come on board, you're gonna, you know, start at some rung of the ladder, and they want to be able to say, you know, we want we want you to have opportunities for growth, for mentorship, for you know, you can see some future. Um, it's not necessarily that you're gonna transition to a, you know, management track or something like that. These are people who want to become experts technically, and uh, I think there are six tiers that they offer um, that you can track through. So you can start on first rung and work your way up. Uh, I guess distinguished engineer is the fifth. We have fellows as the oh. sixth. And then beyond that would be uh, an executive. So I actually don't know if we even have any fellows within the organization at this point. Um, if we do, I, don't, I haven't met them yet, you know, but it gives me something to look forward to also. And oh, um, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool to see large organizations, especially in like regulated industries, mm. take tech seriously. Why, why do you think you guys prioritize? Was it from a, like, we got to keep current perspective? Was it, you know, some leadership changes? Mm. One of the reasons I've been at Broadridge for as long as I have is I've really appreciated their kind of forward thinking. Um, as a technical organization, I mean, we're, you know, financial services get such a bad rap, especially large yeah. organizations. Um, I hate banks. <laughs> <laughs> and for us, having to have, um, you know, a, a technical responsibility in that space means we're kind of, you know, required to be a little bit ahead of the curve. So even, right. you know, going back a couple of years now, our past CEO talked about, which is, this is still very current, the ABCDs, right? So AI, blockchain, cloud, and digital, right? Digital meaning, uh, you know, we have a lot of paper that's out there. How do we, you know, transform that? So, so we talk about the ABCDs a lot. And, you know, obviously for the work that I'm doing myself, I'm not touching on any of those things directly. I mean, we're interacting. I mean, obviously we have things in the cloud and we care about digital, but that's not our focus, right? We're not product focused. But if you look at a lot of our executives, they've been around for decades in some cases. So the consistent, um, consistent thing that I've seen come from the company is, you know, we're gonna be not necessarily ahead of the curve, not necessarily at the bleeding edge, but we're gonna be way above average and make sure that we're kind of staying on top of things. And that's something that I've seen over the last eight years that they just continually, you know, right, right about the time where you're thinking, oh, this could be another, you know, dinosaur, Right, giant but enterprise. it's also hard because the executives, they don't know what they don't know in terms of that. Totally, totally. Uh, my suspicion, um, and this is like a little bit personal as well, is you know, you, you get to the point where you don't necessarily understand everything that's happening, but you're educated or experienced enough to see, okay, whatever this thing is over here, I recognize that it's valuable or it's the next thing, you know, and I'll hire somebody to get their hands dirty and roll up their sleeves, but that's the right direction without right. knowing the, the details. So you, you're currently a distinguished engineer, but where did you start? Where did your tech career start? Mm. If we go way back, I actually have to credit my mom for this. She uh, was really an early adopter of technology. I mean, she was, you know, going out to SIGGRAPH in Silicon Valley before anybody, you know, really thought it was like, she was, you know, she was like one of the old school nerds, you know? Nice. And um, so she was talking about, I mean, she was working with, you know, virtual reality in like 2000, you know, and doing these things that just at the time I just assumed was what, you know, grownups did kind of thing. And then, you know, and a lot of the ideas and concepts and 
even different technologies that she was working with and kind of showing me. You know, when it takes like a decade for that to show up, I start thinking, oh, my mom kind of had some idea about <laughs> she was what the future was like. Yeah. So she, she actually made a point to, and she was a teacher as well. So she made it a point to teach me as much as she could about computers, right? Um, so I, I actually don't have a formal tech education. Um, my, my degree's in business, my undergraduate degree. But, you know, growing up, I, 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 you know, I learned how transistors worked and, you know, what binary was and, you know, how, you know, the different components of a computer came together and just kind of the basics, which was, you know, enough to give me a background in how this all happened. I remember, you know, she was like, you know, we got bored one day and she's like, oh, let me teach you about C sharp, you know, and it's like, you know, just randomly, you know, wow. just like looking at That's different things. That's a good things. way to cure boredom. All right, so she got you into transistors, you worked through, you got into tech. Well, just, you know, so I'm, I'm somewhere in between like, you know, your average layman and someone with a CS degree, you know, I'm like somewhere in the middle there. And it was enough that, you know, when I had some opportunities come up uh, for like entry level roles, I, I had enough of a foundation that it was justifiable to bring me in. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I actually started doing, you know, kind of like, you know, your basic like test monkey, you know, manual tester, going, okay. clicking through an interface and all that. And um, I was really fortunate. I had a great mentor at the time who I was working for there who said, hey, well, let's, let's get you into the automation of this. And within about three months, I was able to move from, you know, doing the manual work to actually writing code and, you know, testing with automated scripts and things like that. And, uh, you know, we saw, we saw enough return that they gave me some more opportunities and things like that. And that kind of grew. Um, and uh, I ended up doing that for, I guess it was close to four years, uh, three and a half years, something like that. And, uh, yeah, a lot of little, like, random side gigs with, you know, putting together websites or, you know, writing various little snippets of code for things. But, um, yeah, that's the, the foundation, my, my roots. So, so, you know, I've always thought it, it's interesting because there's a lot of people, the, the cool thing about QA and like having a sense of QA is, number one, you kind of have a, a holistic view of the application mm -hmm. and you can look backwards at the delivery chain be like, okay, there was a process that built this thing versus, you know, developers who are at the very beginning, they see their part totally. and that's it, mm -hmm. usually. But then the other thing is, you know, people who are opportunistic about QA do start to talk about automation and that same automation can feed very well into DevOps. So it does seem kind of a yes. natural transition. Unfortunately, most QA people don't champion themselves enough mm -hmm. to start to move into those broader roles or even be able to embrace automation because they can't explain to the organization the value. Totally. So that, that, that evolution makes a lot of sense to me. Well, and it's, it's actually what led to like our, you know, being put in charge of this DevOps COE at the organization because, you know, one of the challenges that QA people have is they're waiting for the deployment to drop so they can test it, right? And, right. And, you know, obviously developers are like, yeah, we got code to write, you know, go, go figure it out or talk to somebody else about it. They're not terribly helpful. And there are a lot of people in QA who don't necessarily have the depth of technical understanding. They're just kind of like, well, it shows up and I do things, you know? Right. And what we realized was there was a ton of opportunity for automation around the deployment, right? So bringing together, I mean, you talk about the, the complexity of the stacks that we work with, right? It's not just that we have hundreds of products, it's a lot of those came from acquisitions and right. mergers and 
you know, sometimes we've got some bleeding edge technology that we just acquired and we're simultaneously running, you know, the mainframe, you know. So having to have that broad view meant, okay, how do we bring together not just those different technologies, but within a single application, even, you know, the UI and the database, right? How do we get those both at the same time in the same place? And so we kind of shouldered some of that. And we didn't really understand it at the time, but we were basically putting together a continuous delivery pipeline. And so when all of that literature started to come out and people are like really, you know, get a little traction around that, we were like right there, ready to jump on board. Right. And it, you know, we didn't have to learn But you it. didn't have to label sense. it either. Totally. Like you were just totally. focused on just building the thing. Exactly. You didn't have to put a label on it so you could go exactly. talk about it. You're just, you're just focused on the tactics. I truly believe that even if we didn't label DevOps, if we just, if everybody had a regular focus on release velocity, application quality like yes. all this stuff kind of comes naturally it comes totally and that's and that's that's where we were just sitting at that spot and we we're just like all right well this is obviously this is what we're doing so yes now we'll we'll use your industry label and we'll we'll be on board and we're kind of hit the ground running in that sense um so i one of the people i interviewed is greg seipel from usa today or the broader organization that manages all the sites and they kind of have a similar model where they have um, center of excellence for, for DevOps. One of the things that I thought was interesting about what they do is that they truly are kind of providing DevOps as a service, but they also don't necessarily have the ability to for, enforce what individual dev teams use. Is it the same in your organization or can you dictate? I actually don't want to dictate when it comes to the dev, the dev side of things. Um, you know, when it comes, you know, we, we provide you know, automation, like a framework that developers can use for CI, for example, but we say your development server, the technologies that you use, you know, whatever build server is going to be 100% on you. We don't even, you know, we'll plug it in and you can do it as you please with it, but it's totally up to you. So our, the, the first mark, like we sometimes we call it a toll gate or a milestone or, you know, the first deliverable that we really care about is their development artifacts in a artifact repository. Uh -huh. Now we want to see them practicing continuous, you know, fill in the blank. We hope that they have an automated test suite that runs against it. You know, we hope, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we we, we recommend a you know trunk-based branching strategy, but you know, you have thousands of developers. They're going to be very creative and come up with the own, their own right. things. And so we very intentionally did not want to dictate to say, oh, well, everybody has to fall in line with X pattern, right? We right. have you know, multiple CI servers and technologies in use. We have different patterns. And especially when you consider the breadth of technology that we have to work with, it's like, you know, we're not gonna- There's no way to- There's no way, I mean, you know, the, the same approach for, I don't know, the two extremes that I use as just, you know, conversation is, you know, serverless and mainframe, right? And we've got, you know, whatever- Are you guys doing anything serverless? Oh yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Just like functions? Uh, there are a couple of products that we have that are actually running the, well, the application, cool. uh, which is kind of cool. Um, but it really runs the gamut, right? The levels of maturity, the different types of technologies. So for us, it was, okay, what outcomes can we identify that everybody can get behind? So, I mean, that's, that's cool, but from a support perspective, isn't it really challenging? Because people are kind of, like you guys obviously aren't supporting all of these snowflake in implementations. Totally. When we have like, a dozen people on our team, right? So 
there's no way. There's, it's not possible, which is actually considerably large, but, you know, compared to some organizations. But do you, is it kind of like use our design pattern or don't, but if you don't, then we're not going to support you? You're uh, on your own? That, that's, pretty, that's pretty good, actually. We'll, we'll, that's a really great way to describe it, right? Because we have teams that have got this figured out. Right, we have teams that are mature. They've done this on their own. We might have acquired them from you know wherever it is, and they've got their pipeline really well dialed in. We're not going to come to them and say, "Listen, you have to use a different source control repository. You have to use a different CI server. You have to." We're not going to do any of those types of things. But we're also not going to support whatever you came up with, right? Right. So, and, and you said uh, you know I have to be careful not to get in trouble here. I I, I think for the world listening to this, it would be fine to say this, but in my company, I get in a lot of trouble because I say, well, we don't really care what your pattern is or your process is. Like, and people go bananas, right? Because we have to be very rigid. We have to right. convey, right. you know, we're practical, tactical, very intentional, and this is, you know, you must exactly X, Y, and Z, which when we're talking about the patterns that we have and the tools that we have, yes, that's true, right? The supported single path to success is exactly this. But beyond that, we're not going to restrict people to say, if you don't do this, you can't do it. We're just going to say, this is the one pattern that we are capable of supporting. You're on your own outside of that. And it's kind of a self-policing mechanism in that respect because you don't, you don't necessarily want to be doing something else that your peers, like you don't want to be so far out from your peers that you can't even get, you know, work together and collaborate. Now, where does, where does InfoSec and SecOps intersect with your organization yeah so this gets um well okay the best example i think was we have you know regular meetings where we just leave it open to anybody you know we have communities of practice right i because I, you said something earlier that reminded me of this you know there's an article what was it 2010 andrew clay schaefer you're doing it wrong right and basically his boiling down of what devops is is like a global community of practice right and you think about the challenges in security that you know InfoSec is dealing with and all the friction that you have when you're trying to convey that to developers or others in the organization you know and of course security gets this you know in many cases they get this oh well they're getting in our way and right. telling us we can't do things slowing and everything slowing yeah. us down and it's and it's this very separate independent kind of authority that just is out there abstractly right and people don't really have a lot of connection to that so for us to have a community of practice said, you know, you guys have to show up. You want to have a conversation about what you want to see happen. Let's be a part of this. And so we have them on the call. We have developers on the call. And, you know, this was when there was a big focus on, like, you know, static code analysis and things uh -huh. like that. And so they said, okay, well, we need, we need you guys to be running scans on every build, right? And, you know, well, it has to be automated and et cetera, et cetera. And, one of the developers said, you know, my build takes three minutes and I'm usually two to five hours in the queue to get my code scan to happen. Oh yeah. So if I do what you're asking me to do, <laughs> it's gonna really dramatically slow me down and that's not a good thing, right? And up until that point, the security guy that we had on the call didn't get the impact that they were having to the development teams and they didn't understand why the development teams were so resistant to we can't no we're not going to do what you're asking and of course security is sitting there thinking 
that developers are saying, we're, we're, we just don't care about security, which isn't the case. It's just, we can't have this, right. you know, we can't make this a stick in the mud. Right. So, what's so it? They got a seat at the table, but they also had to engage in the conversation. They couldn't just sit there and exactly. be like, God, and exactly. grumble the whole time. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, it, and it kind of, you know, put some accountability you know, on the table that wasn't there before because they, they couldn't just dictate anymore. They had to say, oh, we need to come up with a solution for this. So we, we still ended up requiring uh, the code scans, but what they did was when the build would occur, they would kick it off in parallel and it kind of off to the side and nobody really, you know, had to monitor anything. And then it didn't matter until you actually wanted to promote the artifact. Okay. Days, right. weeks, whatever later. So, you know, you would get the notification seven hours after the build kicked off that there was a problem but you then had you know, a week or however long it was to actually resolve the issues. So it sounds like it's still kind of very centralized though. Like it a very centralized Absolutely. process. You're still kind of throwing it out over the wall, but at least both teams are, are making an effort to understand what the impact is, mm -hmm. like you said. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it's, I, I think of it as kind of the lowest common denominator for you know, negotiation. How do, how do you, what, what's the, what, what do you need to do to, to get to a point where everybody's happy, right? Yeah. And I think when you, you talk about like a centralized approach, especially when you get to a large enterprise, it's very difficult to get away from shared services, right? So you have these different service delivery teams responsible for fill in the blank. You know, I'm not gonna hire, you know, enough DBAs to embed a DBA on every, every right. product team, right? I'm gonna have a core group that is able to support the organization. So what we focused on is, how do you reduce that handoff or the friction right. between these two groups, whether that's you know the DBAs or security or fill in the blank monitoring we talked about earlier. Um, it just has to be accessible, right? And I think all the conversation that you hear around you know, these you know, multidisciplinary cross-functional teams and everything else, it's all intended you know, to reduce the friction. Yeah, and I, so I struggle with terms which I previously fully embraced and now I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of, which is the term full stack, number one, because I don't know if anybody really yeah. knows what that means. Does that mean that you know database to front end? Does that mean database <laughs> front end QA and dev? Like, does it mean you add security in there? What is full stack? Totally. There's a lot of stacks. Um, but also shift left, and it's not that I don't like shift left. Um, I like the idea behind shift left, but I don't know if it's shift left in practice or if it's shift left in like stewardship and understanding, like being being aware of quality, being yes. aware of security, but not necessarily running it myself because I'm the one who built it. Now the unicorns out there, they are truly shift left. Like Slack, you build it, you support it. Um, you're on call for your code and every aspect of it. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure about either one of those. And I think there definitely is the reality once you hit scale and, and a lot of us, unfortunately, who talk about DevOps mm. have never been in a scale situation. Totally. Totally. That, it, it's, it's a completely different game, right? You know, one of the, you talked about, you know, the, not necessarily shifting the responsibility left, but just shifting the understanding. Right. Um, uh, Real, one of my favorite examples is a woman that I work with named Jennifer who um, was kind of one of the early adopters that we worked with a couple of years ago, maybe even three years ago. 
and she found out how much control she could have over the deployment, which if you're in development, you know, you want all kinds of levers and buttons and, you know, interesting things. So her deployment had, I don't know, 50 variables associated with it. And she look at all these little things I can tinker with, which enabled her to be more successful as a developer. And then when it, you know, gets up to production, we don't want 50 potential variables, right? We want, you know, what's your locked down version 1.0, whatever it right. is, and where is it going? I want two variables, right? I want I want the thing that you want to deploy and the destination to where it's going. And I don't want to have to have this crazy matrix of possibility that, you know, rabbit holes upon rabbit holes. And she had this, she had this like moment where she's like, well, it doesn't matter. We'll keep it like this all the way out to production. And then the production deployments, they just won't select all those variables. And we were like trying to help her understand that, well, if you do that, it's still this perception of complexity or even what if somebody accidentally selected a, something else from the dropdown. And when she had an opportunity, not necessarily to support that, but when she was kind of responsible then for, you know, I think it was QA we brought her into and she's doing the QA deployments, she realized how valuable it was to have things be really simple. Right. And like basically the next day, her deployment pipeline was two variables and it was the thing you want to deploy in the destination. But then she had this like kind of like way of side channeling the variables for the development environment so that she could, you know, have all that additional yeah. complexity. And, you know, th this isn't someone who gained additional responsibility. She just came she to understand it. Right. how it's going to right. eventually be leveraged. And it seems like such a simple thing. And it is relatively simple conceptually. Yeah, well, th like things get complex very fast. I mean, when you mm -hmm. talk about like the in, in her what she has on her dev environments, parity between dev environments oh and production is also a massive challenge yes. that so many organizations are struggling with. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned earlier mainframes, and I'm I'm uh, ever since I kind of discovered and started learning about ZOS. Like, do you guys really have to work with mainframe applications? I mean, I personally don't have like a ton of responsibility in that space, um, but we do have we do have teams that are much more responsible and and have to have to do that. So um, we had a great guy out of London um, who actually met at a DevOps event in 2014 in in London. Um, and he just saw me checking my email, and he's like, "Do we work for the same company?" But you know, he's he's responsible for a COBOL development team. Oh wow! You know, yeah. and you know, we're essentially at that point we were basically peers trying to figure all this out. You know, so you know, they still have to do those things. But you know, I I don't want to say fortunately, um, but you know. I don't have to get my hands dirty with yeah. the mainframe, which is kind of nice. Well, so ZOS is supposed to be kind of like this layer between old and modern. Mm. And um, I'm very fascinated about like, how can you bring like not just m old code into modern applications, but how, how do you bring like DevOps practices yes. to that um, splunk your mainframe, totally. monitor your mainframe. Like, totally. how do how do you do that? And I, I I would love to be a part of an environment where that's happening, but I know it's few and far between, and they're kind of like in a cave somewhere. Well, I can I can give you some little little nuggets to chase down. Um, there's a kind of I think it's like a classic talk. I want to say it's John Cordyback. Uh, it's like you know from mainframe to continuous delivery and a thousand easy steps or something like that. <laughs> that um, was an easy step. <laughs> and it's this, it's this great talk about basically automating 
you know, the testing and the delivery, and it's, you know, it's probably 10 years old now or something. Um, and there's also, I wish I could remember her last name. I, I want to say Rosalind at IBM. Yes, yes, I know Rosalind. Yeah. Rockstar. I mean, she, yeah. she yeah. was really influential for kind of my, like, maturing my understanding of how we can do kind of shared services uh -huh. well and can do it at scale and can, you know, it doesn't have to be that we're going to slice and dice and make these little two pizza teams or whatever. Like you can actually do this at scale with the existing structure, which I had kind of believed, but didn't really see anyone else doing well. And then I came across her and it was like, this is a, this and it put all the like icing on it, you know, and made it all kind of come together for me. Um, so she's awesome. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I think, I don't know if I did a webinar with her uh, for devops.com or what, but yeah, I mean, she knows her stuff mm. and, it's it's an interesting challenge and you know i don't know i think a lot of us techies have that fascination with retro and right. you know that's why playstation classic and, and nintendo <laughs> you know you, all of those things are selling um so well well to close it up um i'm curious what you feel about like the next evolution of devops so right now we're kind of in the you know you don't have to sell too many people on devops mm -hmm. I mean, you're working mm -hmm. the financial fight I serve and you're you're embracing DevOps fully, doing a whole bunch of cool things, even at scale in a large enterprise, which are the two biggest arguments against DevOps. Mm. We're too big or we're in a heavily compliant environment. Where where do you think we are now and what do you think's next? Totally. Um, so DevOps has always been really heavily focused on solving the technical problems. I think of it as like, you know, greasing the skids for the delivery of the technical side of things. Right. And that means, you know, you know, even even a few years ago, the conversation was primarily around doing that for software. And now we're saying, well, we're doing that for software, but it's infrastructure as code. So it's now, you know, we're, it's, it's all based in the software, but I, I don't mean the application. I mean the infrastructure, the system configuration, all the different aspects of the stack and getting to the point where you've fully automated all of the technical things. I think the next, so for some companies, maybe they've got their applications really well dialed in, but not necessarily the infrastructure. So there's always more opportunity there. Um, but I think the next horizon, or at least what I'm excited about, is kind of bringing it full circle to what caused all of this to come about in the first place, which is how do we deliver value to our customers, right? right? And it's, it's less about solving the technical problem and more about solving the business problem. And so I think DevOps, Ultimately, the whole reason behind that continuous delivery was to say, we want to make ourselves really, really effective as a business. So I think, I think the next frontier is, I mean, it's, it's hard enough bringing the technical groups together to get along. Right. Okay, well now we're going to bring in people from the business right. that are actually going to have to be part of this ecosystem somehow because... And you know, I mean, in different ways, it's been happening already with like the, you know, SREs Mm -hmm. um, having to bring in marketing and communications and all these people when there's a catastrophic event. Uh -huh. You don't want to send out a marketing campaign when everything's down <laughs> and say we're awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. And I do think that it's, um, it's the culture and the, the, the fact that, you know, when traditional application development was always serving point releases of software or version releases and your your customer almost became that release not the people using the release yes 
And so I feel like now we're like, no, you know, our customers can scream at us very quickly if we do something wrong. So, you know, we have to focus on providing a service to them and not look at it as like packaged bundle up boxes that we ship somebody, you know? So it's a whole mentality thing. And I think it's really cool that you're living it in a large enterprise for eight years. I mean, you stuck around. Like, it's hard to keep a techie like you interested if you're not doing cool things. Well, I think DevOps paved the way for elbowing out into different areas, right? You know, yeah. it's like we can automate the, I mean, it, even though it's the example I gave, you can work really closely with different software teams while they all have different stacks. And then, oh, hey, why don't we do some automated configuration? And, right. oh, hey, now we can write some scripts to spin up some hardware for us. And, you know, the list goes on. So, yeah. Um, and you referenced a lot of books and talks, but you yourself are doing a talk soon? Uh, I am. Um, the next one that I've got coming up is going to be in October in Japan for uh, nice. Jenkins Days Tokyo or something like that. I actually don't know all the details offhand, but uh, yeah, I'll be out there with. So if you're listening and you're <laughs> in your head to Tokyo, <laughs> October 11th, um, go October 11th, close to my birthday, go and see Daniel's talk. Well, I appreciate you um, coming on and hopefully we can have this conversation again in six months or so and see if anything's changed in the world of DevOps. It'd be fantastic. Thank Thanks. You.